Hey, my friend, welcome to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. My name is Lori Seitz. I'm an entrepreneur, mentor, founder of Zen Rabbit, and your instigator in saying fuck being fine. This show is for those of you who are done living with the dumpster fire and are ready to find the tools and courage to transform, to step into more success and fulfillment in both your personal and business life. You're in the right place for stories of self-discovery, gratitude, and connection. And to help you strengthen that connection to your own inner guidance, you'll find each episode has an accompanying meditation. Now let's get into it. On today's episode, I have a real-life mermaid. If it didn't involve water, then Lauren Ammon wanted nothing to do with it during her two decades-long swimming career. Lauren shares how fear inspired a lifelong passion, her different way of meditating, and the importance of falling in love with the process of achieving. We're talking about her transition from high-level student-athlete to human resources professional, and finally, to becoming the mental resilience coach for student-athletes she wishes she'd had. Her current business focus became clear while she was watching the 2020 Olympic Games. She saw Simone Biles remove herself from competition and Katie Ledecky do everything in her power to hide her disappointment following a lackluster race. It was then that Lauren felt deeply called to serve athletes. Her dedication to that calling was cemented when Michael Phelps told the world, competition is overwhelming. We just want someone to listen to us someone to support us mentally through the pressure-filled moments. Today's episode is sponsored by Zen Rabbit. The question many people are asking lately is, how do I find and maintain peace of mind? With everything going on in your world and the world as a whole, staying grounded can be challenging. Yet your happiness and well-being are dependent on your ability to find your center to tap into your inner knowing. Your health and sanity are at stake here. This is where the Fuck Being Fine program for individuals and companies comes in. It's time to stop saying everything's fine when clearly your hair is on fire. You want to learn how to stay calm and grounded no matter what's going on around you? There are people who live this way and you can be one of them. If you're intrigued by this possibility, Message me at lori at zenrabbit.com or text me at 571-317-1463. Hello and welcome to this episode of Fine is a Four-Letter Word. My guest today is Lauren Ammon. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Oh, thanks for having me, Lori. I'm so excited to be here. I, I'm really eager to get into this conversation because this is a topic that hasn't been addressed before and is so, so important and really interesting to me. So let me start with the first question because it's always good to start with the first question. What were the values and beliefs that you were raised with that contributed to you becoming you know, who you were as a young adult? Wow. That is a deep question. Okay. Um... I grew up in a very conservative family, kind of, I'll use that term very uh, broadly, right, when it comes to kind of political views, uh, religious views, those sorts of things. And really raised on the concept of personal responsibility, that uh, you have the opportunity, if you want something, you've got to put all of your work into it, 
in order to get what you want out of it. The concept of broadening on that, right? If you have a problem, my parents were always there to support, but you had to manage it yourself. Okay. You had to figure out how to get through that. I was raised in a family of all girls. And so it was, you have the opportunity to be whatever you want. Your gender or sex isn't going to hold you back. And if you want it, go after it. Did they give you the tools to be able to make those decisions or to find your way through to figuring out the, the solutions to those problems on your own? You know what's funny, Lori? I don't actively remember that. Okay. A lot of it was have conversations, right? If, you've, you, if there's a problem, address it. But I don't actively remember them saying, here's a way you could approach it, try this. Yeah, I don't remember that at all. Okay. I mean, it's interesting that they encouraged you to take personal responsibility, which is awesome. And then that's why I was asking, you know, then did they give you the tools to be able to do that effectively? Yeah. Now that I look back on it, it was kind of <laughs> trial and error. Okay. Which, you know, that's cool too. You learn in a different way you learn. Yeah. I learned in a very different way of, it's almost like the next level of personal responsibility of, hey, that's the value kind of go figure that out on your own. <laughs> right, right. Okay. And so you, I know, you know, in our previous conversations, you've talked about how important swimming is, was in your life. How did you get into that? <laughs> you know what? I've never necessarily made this connection, but my, I have two older sisters and the story goes, I was five years old, so I don't actively remember this, but the story goes, I had a ton of energy. I was constantly asking my mom for money and or food from the concession stand. And apparently I was just a busybody wherever I wanted to go. And so my mom literally threw me in to the pool. Not, you know, not necessarily like, hey, Lauren, go figure it out. But it was kind of was, she put me in swim lessons. I learned and then... I, I figured it out. And, and why I say that it's funny, I've never thought of this or the connection. It's kind of that got back to the personal responsibility conversation of, I'm going to just throw you in here. Mm -hmm. You're going to figure it out. And then, you know, 17 years later, I exited the pool and <laughs> <laughs> I kind of figured it out for myself. But it goes back even farther than that because my father almost drowned. I think when he was four, five, six, something like that. And, um, and so when they became parents, what they told us later is it was a life skill. They just really wanted my sisters and me to have, and it actually turned into a pretty successful career for all three of us. Interesting. So their fear, uh, translated into a swimming career for all of you. Yeah. Interesting. I'd never thought of it that way. Yeah. But you know, one of those moments where fear can be a, a, a productive driver Yeah. of, Right, because what? we often talk about fear as being something that holds you back and is a negative thing. But here it's, it was a, um, yeah, like you said, a driver, a positive influence. Mm -hmm. All right, so talk to me about the, your experience in the, you know, as a swimmer, because you were pretty successful. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I started at five and literally swam until I was 22. The experience was one... It's, it's, sometimes it's really hard for me to put into words because I have such an emotional attachment and reaction to it. But it was probably the most rewarding experience I could have had from the age of six until I graduated college at 22 or five, whatever I started. I learned so, and it goes back to that personal responsibility too. I learned so much in terms of self-reliance, mm -hmm. 
self-trust, though that waned a lot through my experience, um, how to deal with others, how to manage a, well, I was going to say like leader follower kind of relationship, like a coach, right? And a swimmer, but it wasn't always leader and follower. You know, my best coaches were more of a partner Mm -hmm. and really trying to help me figure out who I was and how I can show up in the sport. I mean, it was everything to me, Lori, everything. If I had to miss practice, I was devastated, right? I would rather be in the pool than be on land. (laughs) And, you know, I was, I'm a very rare one sport athlete and never got burned out on it. Until the day I graduated and stopped swimming, I was absolutely deeply in love with being a swimmer. What was the, the most, like what drove you to enjoy it so much? I get asked that question so much and I have a hard time articulating. It was just one, you know how, you know when you just experience something in your life and you think to yourself, that was supposed to happen to me. I think the reason I'm asking is because I think it's so rare that somebody finds something that lights them up so much that they are willing to commit that much time. I mean, how much time a day did that take from your life? Not take from your, you know, how much time a day did you spend in the pool practicing for, for 17 years? Yeah. At the height of my career, so college, the NCAA limits the amount of time, or at least they did when um, I was an athlete. They limit it to about 20, 22 hours. But in high school, it was close to 25, 27 hours a week because I swam seven days a week. I swam twice a day on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And then, so yeah, I mean, I had a part-time job, basically. Yeah, well, almost a full-time job. And that you were really excited and enthused about. That's where the part comes in that it's, I think, so unusual to have that kind of passion for something for so long. Yeah. When I think back in terms of what led me to love it so much, it was like, I could just be free, Mm. right? You know, and and thinking about, you know, swimmers stare at a black line. (laughs) That's all we do, right? You swim back and forth, you stare at a black line. But I remember just getting so lost in my thoughts. I'd have 967 songs running through my head just to get me through it. And I just remember feeling so, this is me. Mm. I just remember like, this is the most authentic I feel. It's an opportunity to, to bring this drive that I had that I, that I don't remember actively developing, right? I just remember having it. doesn't mean that it wasn't developed, but I just mm-hmm. remember just being like, this is so damn fun. Yeah. It, it's almost like you were in this higher level, higher energetic vibration, like you can get to in meditation, you know, obviously, because I'm always talking about meditation and teaching it. But anything where you are like in that zone where you, and you, you mentioned it, you are genuinely who you are. Like you are not necessarily a body, you're a spirit, you're a soul experiencing this absolute joy. Yes. And when you said the word meditation and you and I have had these discussions, I'm not the most uh, successful at traditional meditation, <laughs> though I'm working on it. What, what resonated with me when you said it, it was that idea of active meditation, mm-hmm. you know, because again, staring at a black line was almost like a trance right. in a way. And it was just a place where I could go and forget about what was happening in my life for those two, two and a half hours that I was in the pool 
and you know, it's, it was some of those moments I'd, you know, I'd be thinking about something that happened at school and it would be like, Oh, I know what I'm supposed to do. Like I figured out that problem. You know, if there was like a math yeah. problem or something and it would just come to me and I'd be like, Oh, okay. I'll do that when I get home. <laughs> it was just one of those, like an environment that just brought out who I was, who I'm supposed and to be. And helped you tap into your, your higher knowing, like your inner self, exactly what we've talked about in terms of meditation. Like I never really thought about that correlation before you said that too. Okay. So now you've graduated and you're out of the pool and what happens? I mean, this is the point where life becomes fine, right? Yes. Life became fine. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of context about the last meet that I ever swam. I was Jones to have the best meet I possibly could have right? I I had given everything of myself for the last 17 years. I was so excited. And I remember before I swam the first event of the meet, which was for me, the 500 freestyle, 500 yard freestyle. And I remember it starting and heat one went, I think I was in like heat eight or something, right? And heat one went, I was like, oh yes, here we go. Heat two was like, okay, holy shit, here we go. Heat three was like, okay, breathing a little heavier, feeling a little bit more anxious. Heat four, I could feel the tears starting. Heat five, I was like, holy shit. Heat six, tears were flowing down my face. My coach looked at me and he was like, what Mm. the hell? And I was like, this is going to be the last time I might swim this event and I don't know what's going on. And I dove in the water. I was still crying the entire time. Had the worst race, I think, ever, right? That was the theme for the entire weekend. And I remember touching the wall of my very last event, which was the 1650, uh, the mile, as we colloquially call it in the, in the swimming world. And I was devastated. Mm. I was like, this is the, that was, that was it. Yeah. And, and you didn't perform the way you wanted to. No, I didn't perform the way I wanted to. And here's, this is, this is when I got out of the pool this was the defining moment of it's fine. I got out of the pool. I took off my cap. I had my goggles in my cap and I just happened to throw them behind my back. They landed in the garbage. Perfect shot. <laughs> I was like, well, isn't that fitting? And I was like, whatever. It's fine. I can't do anything about it now. It's all over. That was, and what's funny is, you know, I, I think about all this now. And, uh, you know, I often with my clients and working with athletes, I talk about the seven levels of performance. And number three is the, I'm fine. I gave the best I could, you know, um, I'll try harder next time, but there's always that underlying disappointment, Mm -hmm. shame, feeling of worthlessness, anger, resentment, right? That's what I felt. And I had no idea how to express it or get rid of it or do anything with it. Do you think you would have felt differently if you had swam like great times in that particular meet? Or would you have, because I'm guessing you would have still felt that same disappointment. I absolutely think I would have felt that same disappointment, but I don't think at the level that Mm. I felt it. And what's crazy is that as I examine my story even farther, my entire senior year was one of turmoil. And it's because I was unconsciously mourning the end of my career and it came up in terms of conflict literally the entire year with my teammates, with my coach, uh, with my professors. My professors were like, what the Mm -hmm. hell? (laughs) Like little did they know that I was, you know, about to walk away from something that I love so much. So I believe I would have still felt it's fine disappointment, but not to the level that 
I, I experienced. Yeah. And given what you just said about how you were feeling the whole entire season, it's almost like there isn't any other way that could have turned out. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But I didn't realize that. Of at course. The time. Of course. Right. I didn't realize walking into that very last meet that I had done nothing to actively prepare for the mm-hmm. end. And I had done nothing actively to change how I showed up. And you hit the nail on the head. There was no way I could have performed to my peak with how I was feeling unconsciously. Yeah. So, so t- I want to talk about the transition and what happened there. And then I also want to talk about the lessons that you've taken away from your analysis now of, of what happened. So the transition got a little worse. <laughs> As they often do. Yes. So part of why I didn't prepare for the end of swimming was because my intent, I was a political science major, and my intent was to go to law school. So before I stopped swimming, I had already unconsciously moved forward too. It was this weird dynamic that I had no idea was going on. I was like, okay, well, the shitty end to swimming was quote unquote fine because, okay, now I'm just going to law school the rest of my life is going to start great. Let's focus on something else, right? It's the athlete in me. That didn't go well. Okay, moving on to the next thing. Well, I took the LSAT in May of 2004, just after I graduated. Failed miserably. Like, a score wouldn't even get me into the bottom (laughs) tier of law school. Okay. (laughs) And to say I was devastated was an understatement. The thought processes that went through my mind was, I'm a total loser, right? So here I was having spent 17 years literally losing more than I Uh won because as an athlete, that's the name of the game, right? It was the first time in my life I felt like a complete and utter loser. And I was like, what in the actual hell am I going to do? My swimming career is over. I can't go back to that. I can't distract myself with that. I haven't gotten into law school. And I was like, what in the hell? And every time someone was like, well, you know, um, are you going to go to law school? And I was like, well, you know, um, I just fell and found it wasn't for me. Uh, I don't really want to spend $100,000 to get through it and don't want to come out with debt, right? That was my, yeah. I'm fine, right? Totally fine. Then I had this, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try it again. Here we go. Took it again. One point higher than I got the last time. And I, and then that, that second kick in the crotch, I didn't know what to do with it. Right, because you didn't have the tools to manage how do no. how do I manage like you knew how to manage disappointing performance in the pool, but it didn't translate to here. So now how do you how do you manage the emotions, the feelings, the everything surrounding quote unquote failure? But you know, we've talked about that on the show many times about what is the definition of failure and and re redefining what failure is, you know, in your case, it's just turning you in a different direction. Okay. Maybe you're not supposed to go to law school. Let's just turn you 45 degrees in this other way, but you don't see it at the time. Right. And you, you hit on something too. Yeah, sure. I was accustomed to having disappointing performances. The difference was I always had the next time. I tried twice. There was not going to be a third time. And you're right. This, it was the universe's way of telling me Law school is not your jam, but at 22 years old, I didn't have the awareness 
to truly believe mm -hmm. that. Right. I told myself that. Logically, I knew it. Emotionally, I could not. I don't think it matters that you are 22 because we do the same thing at 32, 42. I imagine that people at 82 are still doing the same thing. Like you're not seeing, you're, you're still, of course you're disappointed because you're human. I, that's what I wanted. But in hindsight, yeah. I mean, hindsight's always 2020. That's how we can connect all the dots. But at the time, you don't know what you're looking forward to. Yeah. And I had, I didn't know what to do. I literally had no game plan. I was like, um, here I am. I graduated with honors, graduated as a D1 athlete. I can't even get into law school. That's what was going right. through my head. So then you, what, how did you, how did you find the next opportunity? Cause I want to talk about what happened once you got into corporate. Like how did you get in, you redirected yeah. your efforts and. So funny. Uh, I went to my mom and uh, she did have a piece of advice and a way to get, move forward. So, you know, as I said, I was a political science major. I loved law, loved it. I love figuring out law, you know, the, learning about the Constitution, huge nerd, like was amazing, right? So she said, hey, you know, a way that you can really kind of go into law without going into politics, because I didn't want to go into politics. And she said, why don't you try HR? There's a huge component of law. So I had the opportunity. I applied for my master's degree at the University of Cincinnati, got another full ride. So a huge win of not coming out with debt at any moment. So, you know, I, that was a huge win for me. Got my degree and then found a job right before I graduated and went into corporate America. And as I look back again, hindsight being 2020, I remember shortly after starting, like, is this really it? Is this right? The I'm fine started creeping in. Again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you go back to the values grown up on, you know, having grown up on, get a great job, take care of yourself, you know, retire when you're, well, you know, my generation, stay the course, you'll be fine. I, I think my intuition knew I never wanted to do the thing. <laughs> and what's really funny is employment law is one of the most mundane, terrible things for me, right? I get into employment law and I'm like, I don't care, I, whatever, <laughs> you know, take the money employee, it's fine. Um, you know, and I, I say that right. tongue in cheek, but it, it really is not something that lit my fire by any means. And you're right. And what's crazy too, so I ended the workforce in 2007. What happened a year later? My experience, my first like legitimate experience in HR was figuring out who got fired, who got what kind of money. And then of course the, how do you keep it from the people who speak to you every single day? Like someone come up to you and you're like, okay, yeah. Um, in my mind, it was like, okay, yeah, you're being fired in two weeks. So um, how do I answer this question without feeling as if I'm leading you down a path? And then two weeks from now, I'm going to be sitting in a room with you saying, um, here's your severance package. Yeah. I wish you the right. best of luck. This question you're asking me now, it's not going to matter in a couple of weeks. So don't worry about it. <laughs> and for me, that's terrible. Like my values of authenticity of like being able to be mm -hmm. transparent and, and, you know, being able to guide you down a path though it may be painful, but I couldn't do that. And it was just another, you know, kind of point in the storyline of, okay, we'll just get through 2008. It'll be fine. Like the economy will come back up. It was the first time I learned what a furlough was. I was like, what the hell mm -hmm. is a furlough? I was like, oh, okay, great. This is fun. Um, 
you know, and then a couple years later, still doing it, you know, it was still kind of the fallout. I knew the company was kind of on the decline. It's fine. I'll go find another job at another mm-hmm. company and just continuing down. That and that's what path. you did. Yeah. And I just kept jumping company. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting that you just use the term of, of I'll just get through it. Like just head down, keep going. Cause that's what you would learn to do. Well, that's what I learned to do. Right. And that's part of the athletic background too of, okay, just, you know, just put a little bit more work, you know, just, you know, be able to power through. But the difference there was I really enjoyed mm-hmm. swimming. Mm-hmm. So it was power. It was a more powerful message of get through well, it. You'll, there's something on the other side for you. I'm, I'm, what I'm hearing is the difference is you enjoyed the process in swimming. Here it was an end. It was a means to an end. The process was not enjoyable. And this is such a key point right here for anybody who's listening is that, that if you're not enjoying the process, then the end result is probably not going to be as satisfying as you are expecting it to be either. You hit the nail on the head. And I would even take it as far as the end result will never yeah. be what you want it right. to be. This is, this is a hard thing to, to get, even for, I mean... As much as I do all the work and, and, you know, you've been, all the people that I think that are, have been on the show have done a lot of personal development work, that whole, like, still enjoy the process. Like, if I had a superpower, it would be teleportation. Like, I just want to be there. I don't want to enjoy the process. I just want to get to the end result. <laughs> but I get it that that's not how life works. So there, you know, that's what I'm working on these days, <laughs> this life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what's crazy is that, you know, we had ta- you had asked about lessons learned. And I think one of the biggest lessons is exactly what you said, is that in athletics, the end result is everything, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're, you're winning or you're losing. However, you pointed out the difference is that I loved the mm-hmm. process, absolutely enjoyed it. But what I couldn't separate when I was an athlete was being so focused on the outcome. Right. Right. I didn't realize I loved the process. I didn't realize the power of the journey versus arbitrary destination. Yeah. And no doubt that's what made you as good as you were. Like even if you weren't getting the times all the time that you wanted, you were swimming at a very high level. And in order to get to that level, you had to be good. So but your enjoyment of the process is what contributed to your success. And mm-hmm. yeah, and so that's I mean, whether you're you're an athlete or you're building a career or building a business, mm-hmm. enjoying that process and kind of, I want to say letting go of the outcome. It's not, not letting go, but letting go of the attachment, like the death grip on this is what must happen. And this is how, you know, I read a lot of books. I love Mike Dooley's book. I'm reading again, playing the matrix. And he taught, you know, the house, he calls them the cursed house. That's not our domain. We are only mm-hmm. in charge of doing the thing um, setting, setting the course, like what do you, where do you want to go? What do you want to bring in? But how you get there is not, not our, any of our business. No. And you know, you talk about the whole fine, right? You know, just being fine, smuddling through it, da, 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 da. And that's what I did. I distracted myself by jumping mm-hmm. from, from company to company. And, you know, for anyone who's in that fine state, you know, if you feel it, even in a moment, follow it, right? Because my fine ended, 
it became wildly apparent to me. I just shouldn't say it ended, right? It became wildly apparent to me when I physically could not go in to my role as an HR director and talk to anyone <laughs> about anything. And it was, I became so avoidant, like I would avoid everything. And then that started reflecting on my performance. And then I was called into all these meetings of where, why aren't you, you know, there and da, 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 da. And mind you, the company culture was absolutely toxic and abysmal, which was another part of the whole conversation, but I physically couldn't do it. What was the absolute last straw? You're like, I am out. And what, 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 yeah. Tell me about that. And then where did you, so you left and then what happened? Like, where did you go? What are you, how did you get to where you are now? Because you're in so much better place now. Yeah. So my fine, what was running through my mind, though I couldn't articulate it at the time was more of like, I just don't feel like Mm -hmm. myself. Like I was combative. I was conflict. I was, I was trying to find every conflict I possibly could, which is not in my nature. That's what you were doing with your teammates the last year, huh? Right. Right. There is the connection. And, um, but also wildly avoidant. Like if I couldn't get the conflict then I would just retreat, it was this weird back and forth. But the very last straw, I was in a meeting and like, but corporate politics literally drives me insane. And so I was in a meeting and I had done a presentation like two weeks ago, I or before that, I then came back with a second version of the presentation. We were now in a meeting reviewing this presentation for the third time, and my boss's boss looked at me and said, mm, I really liked the first version that you did. And I'm sure, because everyone tells me my face <laughs> in that moment was literally, I'm sure it said fuck immediately <laughs> off. And I just sat there and I was like, with gritted teeth, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, thankfully I saved the first version so I can go back to it fairly quickly. And it was, I, I left that meeting, I, I ran to my car and cried. And it was that moment that I was done being mm-hmm. fine. And I said to myself, you've got to make a change and this is the time or else you will never do it. And then what were the tools that you used to transition from that horrible toxic environment to be able to come up with the the direction that you're going now. Yeah. So that's when I went um I had I had a uh, what's the role? research, hello. Um coaching programs like 5 years earlier cuz I had this idea of with my boss at the time of I think it would be great for us HR business partners that's the role I was in at the time to look into coaching see how we can really kind of introduce this into the organization and at the time it was we don't have the budget you know da 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 so fast forward 5 years and I was crying in my car and I literally was just like fuck it I'm doing this right now and I had remembered one of the programs. And I was on my phone in my car, found the number and I called the admissions Mm. office and the person as the universe would fucking have it. I, I, um, I talked to the person and her story was about how she was in finance and she was looking for a job and she was at a networking event and she had been talking to either a previous manager or a previous connection. And her story was that person had said to her, You'll never find what you're looking for because of how you're showing up. It's apparent you're miserable. And I started crying again. I was like, oh my God. Right? It was like her story. She had no idea what I was Uh going through, but her story resonated so deeply. Fast forward, I get into the classroom and 
the whole premise, I, I found IPEC, I, the in, Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching. And the whole premise and the whole program is built on the seven levels of energy, which is how I came up with the seven levels of performance. And it's talking all about how you experience the different levels of energy and how you show up in the world. Lori, when I tell you in the first 30 minutes, I was blown away. I literally had the uh, training manual in my hand and I was like, I dropped it and I walked out of the room because I was like, oh my God. So when you talk about the tools, the greatest tool that they taught was you have a choice. Even if you are in that victim mode, and I use the word victim not as you're not taking responsibility. It's the victim of, I feel like life is happening mm-hmm. to me. I have no other choice but to go down the path. Right, right. Happening to you, not for you. For you, right? And just the simple awareness of, holy shit. Even if I took a simple one, not acting is a choice, sure. right? Not acting is an action and it's a choice. So just being given the language, not only of what those seven level energies mean, but how I can move myself in and out of them, I was blown away. Because what it triggered in a really influential way is that idea of personal responsibility. Ah, tying it all back, but now giving you the tools. Right. It's, it's interesting. A lot of the people I've talked to, a lot of my guests on the show have gone through coaching programs to learn how to be a coach, but the person who benefited the most from this knowledge was themselves. Like they were coaching themselves through something that they could not find anywhere else. That is the most powerful part of that process. And that's what I tell everyone. I, yeah, great. I have tools that I can, that I utilize to coach, but really the greatest self-discovery is how I can completely shift my being in my mindset and that everything I experience is about me right. and everything I perceive about someone else has nothing to do with me. That was one of the biggest mind blown moments of my life. Although doesn't it still have something to do with you because it's your perception of other people is a reflection of how you think about yourself. Yes. There's always the tie to you, but it, what was powerful for me is that, you know, I, you know, we can go way deep into my psyche, but you know, for me, it was like, it, it allowed me the opportunity to not carry so much of the responsibility of the perception I had of other people, right? Or, or my, my role in their actions, right? Because you, you hit on something, right? When we see something in someone, it is a reflection of something that is inside of us, whether we want it mm-hmm. or we don't want right. it, right? Um, and so you hit on that connection, but what it helped me do is create a healthy boundary between those two things. Gotcha. Gotcha. We are just about up to the end of time. However, I want you to share, um, the cool, just briefly, the cool work that you're doing now, because I want the world to know, I want my listeners to hear what you're working on now and why it's so important. And then... I need to ask you the, the, the last question, the okay. last super fun question. So what I, I love super fun questions. Um, what I do now is, one, it took me two years to get here, but I work with athletes to train their minds like they train their bodies. And so I specifically work with high school and collegiate level athletes and their coaches to create the level of awareness 
that performance is just as influenced, if not more, by your mental state over your physical state. And starting to create the awareness that what you believe about yourself and the thoughts going through your mind have a significant impact and influence on your overall performance. And that's why we talk about performance reimagined. It's because I get the question of, well, what do you do with an athlete who just wants to be a better hitter? Well, my answer is, it's not about learning the technique or skill. It's learning about all the stuff that's swirling through their mind that's preventing them to reach their peak performance as a good hitter. And a lot of people look at me like, what? Like, yeah. A lot of what goes on with an athlete has everything to do with what's going on between their ears. Right, which you experienced firsthand, going back to Mm -hmm. that whole story at the beginning, and is relevant. Your choice is to work with young athletes, and what you're talking about is relevant to everybody listening because Mm -hmm. your performance, whether it's on the field or in in any athletic way or whether it's career-related or even just Mm -hmm. life-related, like your performance as a human, Mm -hmm. all comes back to that. That's awesome. Yeah. Performance is performance is performance. Right. doesn't matter where you're doing it. And your outer results are always going to reflect what's going on inside. Very cool. So now, speaking of performance, what is Mm -hmm. the song that you listen to when you need a boost of energy, you need your hype? You like it? You like your walk-up song. And this is really funny because the song brings me to tears every single time. Uh, It's This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. Yeah. Good one. Very good one. All right. Well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. What else can we put a link to? Where can people find you if they wanted to continue this conversation with you? Absolutely. You can find me at www.laurenammon.com. You can also find uh, laurenammon.com forward slash guaranteed win. That's a free resource that uh, I have athletes walk through and anybody who's um, looking at their performance from a different manner. Uh, it walks you through the three ways that you can outline what winning looks like for you and start to teach the concept that winning is on your terms and has nothing to do with the external world. Love it. All right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks so much for joining me today on Fine is a Four-Letter Word, Lauren. Oh, thank you, Lori. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. Conversations with Lauren are always entertaining and insightful. Here are five key takeaways from today's interview. Number one, We often think of fear as something that holds you back, but as Lauren mentioned here, it can also be a productive driver in life and influence positive outcomes. Number two, when you're closing a significant chapter of your life, it's important to prepare for the emotions that come with it. Even when you can see the closing of that chapter coming, and no matter if they're positive or negative emotions, that ending can still be difficult. Number three, when you're striving for a goal, you're going to spend a lot more time immersed in the process of getting there than you will at the summit. So it's important to fall in love with the process more than the goal. If you're not enjoying the process, then the end result will never be what you want it to be. Number four, not taking action is a choice. People often say they don't have a choice, so they stay where they are and they don't do anything different. But understand that not taking action is a choice. Number five, self-discovery is the greatest gift you can give yourself. 
You can understand what you see in others is a reflection of something that is inside you, good or bad, positive or negative. And when you shift your mindset, you can relieve yourself of the burden of responsibility for your perception of other people. Thanks for being here and subscribing to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. Please share this show with a friend or a colleague. If you're feeling especially generous, leave a review so other people like you can discover the show too. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and all the major podcast directories. You can join me on social too. On Instagram, it's zen underscore rabbit. You can find links to the other platforms at zenrabbit.com. Before you go, remember to take a moment to think about what you're grateful for today. Lastly, you can find this week's meditation queued up right after this episode. And if no one's told you this week, I'm proud of you. Take good care.